everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Grit with me, Robert Young. Happy 2022. I hope everyone had a safe and wonderful holiday season. You know, I can't believe the holiday season's over. Time flies. This week, my guest is Matthew Imes. Matthew is a successful entrepreneur, author, and partner in Dig Entertainment. He's currently the president and co-founder of Prodigy Care Services. His book is called What If and can be found on Amazon. Dig Entertainment co-produced a horror movie called A Savannah Haunting, which is doing extremely well on the film festival circuit. Matthew and I had a great conversation on life and not limiting yourself to just one thing. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, tea, maybe a whiskey, and enjoy the show. And I'll see you next Wednesday. Hey, Matthew, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you uh, very much for taking the time to come on the uh, the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. So we're, um, what have you got going on right now? What's your latest things in the, uh, in the oven? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like we were talking about a little bit offline, it's, uh, it's all over the board. So I've got my real world job, which mm-hmm. is I'm president of a company that's a pharmacy benefit management company. It's a startup, um, in the creative world, I work with a production company. Uh, I wrote uh, a couple of books and uh, we, the production company now, we've got a movie that's coming out soon and is hitting the festival circuits, doing very well. So we're very excited about that. So I yeah. kind of have a wide range of things. All and, kinds and of all things of them, going on. Yeah. And all of them are going really well. So it's pretty exciting. Good. Where, you, where do you live? I live in Houston. Well, west side of Houston. West side of Houston. Yeah. Does it get cold there or does it stay pretty mild? It's pretty mild, although okay. last, if you remember last winter, we got that horrible freeze yeah. where it was down to seven degrees and everybody here, we had trouble power outages. Um, my power was out for, I think, three days before it started coming on sporadically. And when okay. it first came on, temperature inside the house was down to 36 degrees. Oh, my like, gosh. Oh, yeah, we're not, we're not built for that. No, that is cold. Have you lived there your whole life? I uh, grew up in uh, Louisiana, born in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, my, my parents moved us to Baton Rouge when I was, I think, three. Uh-huh. So I spent vast majority of my life in South Louisiana. Okay. Did uh, do you have siblings and stuff like that? Yeah. Two brothers. I'm the, I'm the middle kid. You're the middle uh, one? Yeah, my older brother's really, really smart. Uh-huh. Um, and he did well. He went to Vanderbilt, president of a bank. I mean, kind of that kind of genius. Yeah. And my younger brother was a, a, an amazing athlete. Um, could have played baseball anywhere and had scholarship offers. And, you know, he just decided he was tired of it. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up moving on and doing other things, but it was really cool to watch him, you know, progress in his athletic career. Was baseball always his sport? Oh, that was it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he played other things sparingly, but mm-hmm. baseball was it. That was, that was love. It. Man, and that, what, what if, what if, <laughs> uh, where have I heard that phrase? Where have I heard this story. <laughs> and then did you play sports growing up? I, I did. I, my sports career was very much like my professional career. It was all over the board. I okay. played early on. I played football. I 
quit after ninth grade because I kept getting injured because kids were getting bigger and faster and stronger. And I'm like, what the heck? So uh, then I focused on baseball and uh, soccer. And I ended up having a uh, half of a soccer scholarship to Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana, little school that back then was a division one school. And I got there and I had a half academic and half uh, athletic, but they wouldn't let you take both. So my mom and I sat down and she said, look, take the academic, get your grades. Once you're sure you're doing well, you can go play sports. And that's what I did. And the second semester of my uh, freshman year, Centenary needed an additional sport to maintain its Division I status. So they started volleyball. And I had played volleyball recreationally, but at, at that level, I knew more than anybody else did at the college. So when they started, I was like, great, you know, I'll, I'll go play volleyball. Mm-hmm. And uh, ended up playing varsity volleyball, was a captain of the team for four years. And uh, one other gentleman, uh, Kenny Gillet, and I were the only four-year letterman in varsity volleyball history at Centenary because after our senior year, they discontinued the program. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, sweet. So Kenny and I are, we're the guys. Wow. That's funny that they brought it on. They're like, oh, this is, uh, this is pretty good. And then, uh, okay, we're done. Well, it was cheap, which was yeah. good, right? Uh, and, and then they realized that when you only have eight or 900 undergrad students, you don't need to be a division one school. Yeah. And so then they dropped down to whatever it was, division three, and they didn't need all those sports anymore. So they, they cut that out. And they cut it. Yeah. What, uh, so after when you graduated from college, um, what did you end up doing? From there, yeah, this uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so mm-hmm. I, I was going to go to law school. I had um, taken a series of tests as a junior, and it was actually with a company in Houston that it was called the Childress Test, and I don't think they're around anymore. But it was two days of testing every little thing you can do, everything from reading comprehension to finger dexterity to just everything. And when we were through with the test, they did an analysis, they wrapped it up, and give you a report. And the gentleman who ran it, he said that the goal is let's identify what you have aptitudes for, particularly high aptitude, because if you want to be a happy, happy person, you need to address those things that you're really good at. And you may not know you're good at some things. Like I had no idea I had music aptitude. And when I say music aptitude, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't play a musical instrument. But I, when I hear music, I can hear the rhythm, tone discrimination, I, 99th percentile across the board. And it never would have dawned on me because I can't sing and I can't dance and I can't mm-hmm. play an instrument. So what they found was that most people have are very high in a few things. They're medium in a lot of things, and they're very low in, in a medium amount of things. And he said, these are the things you want to focus on. Well, I was very high in a lot of things and very low only in a couple things. And it was finger dexterity and space relations and <laughs> space relations. <laughs> they took a, a, a wooden puzzle that only had six pieces, it was carved, and they disassembled it. They spread it out on a table and you had to put it back together. And my younger brother, when he did the test, he it was like six seconds, put it back together. Minutes later, I still can't get two pieces together. The lady felt so bad for me. She goes like, don't you think this piece would go with that piece? (laughs) I was like the worst they'd ever seen. Uh When the the guy did the analysis for me, he said, look, because you're high in a a higher number of categories, you're going to need to do a lot of different things to keep happy. And he said, I have one other guy that had your same type of profile. He ended up owning six or seven businesses. 
he said, I would tell you, go to law school. Don't plan on being a lawyer. Just it's going to help you as you go through your stuff. So when I graduated college, I uh, had a scholarship to go to LSU Law School. And I went to register that first day. And I got there and I was like, I'm done. I, I just, I don't want to do any more school. And I came home and I sat down with mom and dad. And I, I, I have great parents. Now my mom's passed yeah. on, um, but great, great family. And I said, I, I'm done. I don't want to do school anymore. And they said, we, we support you. No problem. But you've got to get out of the house in 30 days. Period. Mm-hmm. You know, tough love, right? And I, I, yeah, I was I, a spoiled kid. I was like, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we're not going to let you stay here and get lazy. And okay. so 30 days later, I got an apartment. I found a job as an insurance adjuster, which I did not even know what that was. And um, with Liberty Mutual, it turns out to be a very good company. And they, uh-huh. they did a lot of great training. But that forced me to get out and, and become an adult. And so I, I have thanked them for that many times over my life yeah. um, because that couldn't have been easy on them, you know, to tell your kid, we're not going to support you anymore. Go. Yeah. Did you understand it at the time or were you? <sighs> yeah, I did. I hated it. Yeah. So <laughs> it's yeah. not a, not a situation where you can, you know, you have your emotional response and you have your intellectual response and the intellectual side's like, yeah, mm, that's the right thing to do. The emotional side's like, oh gosh, I don't have a lifeline anymore. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was a little bit of a mixed bag there. Yeah. I've got an 18 and a 21 year old and my 21 year old, I've, I got to keep her going, you know, through the school route and, and going through there. And, and I think that if they came to me and said, school's not for me because school's not for everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, but present me with a plan. So you came to your parents and said, school's not for me but they gave you the plan. Oh, yeah, like, I had no plan. They were like, okay, you, well, you're going to figure this out. And uh, kudos to them. You know, I agree. I, and, and I don't know, I know this, I'm old, right? I, I don't know that today's generation gets that level of tough love that I got, which wasn't as aggressive as the tough love that my mom and dad got, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a softening over uh, generations, uh, maybe not a good thing, but yeah. it, it was good for me. Because human nature is such that when you get your back up against the wall, that's when you're going to do your best. You're going to work. You're going to do everything that you need to do to survive and to thrive. And that's what I did. And so got a job, uh, stayed there a couple of years, ended up getting multiple jobs uh, over the time because it, my brain works in such a way that I was always looking for the next thing. And it, it's led me to where I am. So I don't want to curse it, but it's sometimes it felt like a curse. Yeah. I agree. And that's what we were talking about before we got on here. And I feel the same way. And I've had to actually talk to people about it because you get to a level or to a point and you're like, where's the, what's the next thing? What's, what's next for me to explore? And I always took it as a bad thing, you know, that I wasn't following through. And, um, when I was in, there was just, you felt like you had to be somewhere for 20 years, 25 years, or you always had to be an attorney or you always had to do this. So, but you know, as we go through your story, it led you to many different things that are really cool. Yeah. And and there were a lot of stumbles along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. I I left good jobs taking uh, certain things at at face value, which I learned later on. You don't do that. Um, you do your due diligence, you do your research, you do all that investigation. Um, at my heart, I believe all people are good. And 
that you, you need to couch that with protection, right? Um, somebody told me once that good contracts make good business partners. And that is something I've never forgotten because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things we talked about were hurdles that we've had to overcome. Um, I started a business with a gentleman who he and his brother uh, had this idea for a third-party administrator. It's a claims handling facility uh, uh, service that's in the workers' comp and auto liability and things like that, but in the claims arena, which was, you know, my expertise. And I went in with them and we did it on a handshake deal. And these are people I'd known for a while. And, you know, we started with very little money. So we, I didn't take a salary for a year. I was basically bankrupt. You know, I was in huge debt, all of that, because the bigger picture was something that was going to be worth it. Well, after a year, we start making money and the company's starting to grow and things are going well. And he just fires me. And I was like, what? And he's like, I don't need you anymore. And I was like, uh-oh. So we didn't have, you know, have an employment agreement. And I said, well, what about the money for the time that I worked? We agreed that we would pay ourselves back. And I, his quote, and it, it has foul language in it. I just, little heads up there. Yeah. Uh, he said, fuck you. You didn't get it in writing. And I've never forgotten that. And I was yeah. like, oh my gosh. So I ended up suing him and it took five years, but I got paid because the judge yeah. obviously recognized that he couldn't benefit off my labor without paying me something for it. But it, it was a good reminder, a good lesson that even though you know somebody, even though you think you know somebody, you know, put it all in writing. Let's, let's yeah. be clear about that. And, and I took that forward into other businesses. Um, and it, it really, it, you know, any listeners out there that are thinking about businesses, look, I don't care how good that person is to you as a friend, there are going to be challenges and you want everything in writing so that you can go to that employment agreement or you can go to your operating agreement and you can say, here's the answer. It's black and white. We don't have to argue about it. And we're all on the same page. And that level of communication does make for good partners. Yeah. Uh, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Yeah. What did you, I mean, how did you handle that after they, they said, adios, they fired you. Like, yeah. Did, uh, I, I, it's a horrible feeling. I yeah. Mean, it really is a horrible feeling. And I had a lot of um, anger and hatred, which is a harsh word. And I, I don't like using that very much. Um, but I did, I, I felt hatred for that man. And for five years, it burned inside of me to the point where if I saw him, I literally wanted to punch him in the face. Now, I never did it, of course. And the moment the judge, he ruled from the bench and the, the judge ruled. And, and as he was, I started crying because all of that emotion just left me. You know, I, it wasn't the money itself. It was the validation. And, and that's what I got. And what I ended up doing after he fired me was I went to work with another uh, Louisiana-based claims company. And I took a step back. I went back all the way being an adjuster again. And, you know, that was something that was humbling. And it was because before I had left to start this company, I'd been a, a manager of an office in a large territory. And to take a step back to being an adjuster was hard for me, you know, cause I was prideful. And what I learned was that a step back isn't a bad thing. It can allow you to regroup, regather your, your momentum, and then you can use it as a platform to take off again. So after that, I was more careful and I started my own company and uh, got into consulting. And that led me to 
working with a, uh, a relatively new physical therapy network uh, that was nationwide. And I got them their first big account. And when I did that, they asked if I, they, they could buy my business in essence, but basically bring me on, pay me out over time and uh, put me in as a, in a senior executive position to help them grow their company. And when I did that, I think they were at maybe 6 million a year. Um, I exited that company in 2011 and they were 175 million a year. Okay. And it was a great, great learning experience for me to see how a company can grow all the challenges that you go through. And then I started a, a company that ended up um, several name changes, but it ended up being a company called Advanet, which was a pain management network nationwide and workers comp. So if somebody was working, got hurt, they go to their doctor, doctor says, you need to see a pain management specialist. Then those clients of ours would call us, we would schedule those patients, get them into our doctors, make sure that they were being treated properly, making mm -hmm. sure that they're not using opioids when they don't need to be using opioids. And there was no network like that in the workers' comp space. So in 2011, we started it. For two years, we didn't do anything but build our network, build our technology. We spent, oh, we raised $11 million to do this. And um, we were patient. And that was very important because we weren't ready to go to market until we had a substantial network of providers. We weren't ready to go to market until we had great software that could manage the process. And in 2017, um, we, we had been exploding and we applied for Inc. 500 list, which is uh, done every year of the, the top 500 companies growth-wise in the country. And we were the number one fastest growing healthcare company in the United States. And we were the 13th fastest growing company of any kind in the United States. And in 2018, we made the list again. We were, I believe, the 30th fastest growing healthcare company and like the 377th fastest growing company of any kind. And to make the list in consecutive years is kind of hard mm -hmm. because they do a three-year running history. And so we were very excited about that. And that level of, of interest, um, our success generated interest from buyers. And we ended up selling the company in 2018 for, well, it's, it's public now, $115 million. And nice. yeah. And, and what was interesting was that when I got my check, now I had to roll over a lot of money there, but when I got my check for my portion, it was a handsome amount. And I looked at it and I was, I was really, really excited, but now we're going back to our early conversation within five minutes that was gone. And then I'm like, what's next? Yeah. You know, cause the, the, the thrill of building something from scratch all the way up to that point was way more valuable than the, the payday at the end. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to diminish that. I mean, I don't want to diminish the payday cause it, it's, it's taking care of my family. It's stuff like that's very important, but from a personal satisfaction standpoint, that building process is whatever. So now I'm doing it again yeah. and I'm doing it with the pharmacy management company that, that we had talked about and it's in the same workers comp space and we're doing things a little bit differently and we're going to apply for 500. So if you and I have a conversation three years from now, I guarantee you we're going to be on that That'll list and we're going to be very highly rated. Um, we, I, it's, it's a very clear vision of how this is going to happen. And I've got, amazing, amazing partners, um, just like I did at Avenet. That it's, I, I think it was George Bush Jr. 
said at one time, I want to be the least intelligent guy in the room. There's a lot of value there, mm-hmm. you know, because if everybody else is smarter than I am, we got a really good team. Yeah. And if you get people that have diverse skill sets where you can trust them to do the things that they do really well and they're, they're su- the subject matter experts, it's very valuable. And that's what we, we did at Avinet. That's what we have, again, at, at Prodigy, my new company. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do really well. So at, when Advinet was in its infancy, where did you see the need for that? Was it uh, you or was it a kind of a collaboration between you and your partners? Yeah, um, that, it was my idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a, a gentleman who's been a longtime friend of mine. He had started a company called Preferred Pain Management that he had let go and it was basically not doing business. It was still an entity, but it had focused on a very specific component of pain management, which was injections and, you know, epidural steroid injections, things like that. And when I left the physical therapy company, I was talking to him and I'm like, look, pain management, there's no pain management services in workers comp right now. And it's the wild, wild west. And anytime you've got things that are unmanaged and uncontrolled, you've got opportunity. And so I said, what have you done with preferred pain? He says, well, it's still licensed. It's still, you know, existence. We just don't do any business. So he and I reinvigorated it. Okay. And then in order to make it grow, I told him we're going to need a lot, a lot of money because injections alone aren't going to do it. There's so much more to pain management. Just so you know, my wife is an anesthesiologist. She knows a lot about it. She served as a fantastic resource for me as I was picking my way through that process and learning more about it. And um, so I went to my former partners at uh, the the physical therapy because they had exited when the company sold. And I said, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. There's over a billion dollars spent in workers' comp on pain management services and nobody's managing it. And the one thing that we learned really, really well is how to do network management at the physical therapy level. So we took the same approach and we learned from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And for example, the, the PT company, when it was doing 170 million, had about 140, 150 employees. When Advanet sold at 115 million, we only had 28 employees. And we were able to do that because technology, streamlining, automation, all those things that really are, are helpful to allowing us to, to drive value for our clients at the same time generating revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, so my partners there obviously were huge in, in helping bring all of that. They were also very helpful in getting us to raise money because they had access to capital that I did not. So it was a collective effort. Um, my original partner just sold out because he had other things he wanted to do and he's kicking himself literally <laughs> to this day. And I'm going to send him this because he's going to just be like, oh, you are a terrible human being. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jack, I love you anyway, buddy. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it was a great learning experience. And, and then I retired from there. I had a, a non-compete, um, waited it out a little bit. Now I'm, I'm not even competing now, but I, I took a little time off, did a lot of fishing and hunting yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you're an avid outdoorsman. Love, love, love it. Now more on the, um, like the hunting and fishing thing, or do you do, you know, the camping and hiking and hiking? Love it. Camping, Uh not so much. Um, so every year we try to go to the mountains and we, we spend a week or 
two weeks like doing Yellowstone or the Canadian Rockies, or we went up to uh, Glacier National Park this past year. Uh, so I enjoy that component of it, but uh, I'm going to be staying in a nice place. I'm not. Yeah. My wife, she, she would rough it. I'm like, Oh no, really? No, I, I just, it's like, you know what? A hot shower. I, I, I'm going to take a hot shower, you know? Yeah. That's so, so funny. I've, I've interviewed people that have done the mountains of sea trail that have through hiked the Appalachian trail and I'll get out there and I, I love hiking. I'm more kind of in line with you. I'll stay out there for a little bit, but not long periods of time. I like yeah. a hot shower. My I, wife I likes that. a hot shower. I respect them. I do. Yeah. I just, you know, uh, I don't feel the need to do that at this point in my, my life. So when you uh, were at Glacier, did you, uh, any, uh, any bear sightings or no, were the grizzlies away? So disappointing. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And if, if you haven't been go, it's, mm -hmm. it's a stunning, stunning place, but no, we saw limited wildlife and we, now there are a lot of fires in different areas and, there was a lot of haze coming in from California from the, the fires out there. So I don't know if that had any impact, but um, yeah, a little disappointed on that Yellowstone and the Canadian Rockies, there was just wildlife everywhere. Really? And yeah, I had a relatively close encounter with a grizzly up in the Canadian Rockies okay. close enough that I, I felt comfortable because there was a, a big ditch between us and my car was close by that I could get close and get to it. Okay. Um, but you know, yeah, I, did, I didn't need to get any closer. Let me put it that way. No, we haven't made it up to uh grizzly country yet. We did, we did the Southern part of Utah this, uh, last September. And if you haven't been there, it's a great place. So yeah. we hit the sawtooths and, uh, we were in Ketchum and Stanley and out there, I mean, bring your fishing pole all day long oh, and you can go fly fishing. There's such a vast amount of land that is just there for recreation. It's incredible, mm -hmm. incredible. And, and and I don't know, you know, your religious background, but I will say, I don't know that I feel ever closer to God than I am when I'm in nature, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's on a boat, you know, or, or hiking or just sitting in a deer stand. You know, most of the time I don't even shoot deer. I just watch them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's good. That's uh, good. So, yeah. So with all this running and building of companies, where did you get the idea of, Hey, you know what? I gotta write a book. And you know, the cool thing about your, your book is it's not a, how do I built this business or how I did this book? It was a, it was a fiction yeah. book, which uh, is very, you know, and it's a really cool book. Oh, um, thank you. I'm making uh, my way through it. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I, I had, when I was in college, I thought, I mean, I really enjoyed English. I really enjoyed reading all sorts of different types of books. And I thought, you know, I'd like to write a story. And I started a story and, and keep in mind, this was mid eighties, maybe. And I, I wrote 20, 30 pages of it, set it down, got busy, went back and read it. And I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. And I mean, terrible. It was so bad. I, I just was, I was done with writing. It was, it was embarrassing. And then in 2012, when I was starting, really Abnet was kicking off and going, I, I just had this idea, uh, a lady uh, that, I, that worked with me, Rebecca, she and I were driving between clients. So we had a lot of time on the road and she was having struggles in her life. And she was like, well, what if I had done this? Or what if I had done that? How would it have turned out? And I just asked her, what if you could find out the answer? And she goes, oh my God, I would love to know. And that was how it all 
generated in my head. And I was like, okay, well, how do you find out this answer? So what if the story was born uh, from Rebecca asking me repeatedly, what if? Mm-hmm. And we've all done that, right? We've all said, well, what if I had done this? And so that's the idea behind the story. And um, I wrote the first draft in 2012. And then, of course, busy. And I set mm-hmm. it down. And in 2016, um, and this is where sometimes you've got to be lucky. I mean, you just have to be. Um, a friend of mine said, look, I, I had sent the, the draft out to several different agents and nobody took a bite. She said, a friend of mine is a book agent. Why can I send it to her? Sure. Send it on. So the agent called me not even a week later. She said, my name's Lisa Darden. Uh, my friend sent me your book and I read it. And if I may be candid, and I said, please do, because I, I respect that. I, you don't need to pull punches. Just tell me how it is. And she said, your book's terrible. She says, but your idea is so good that if you will allow me and our, my editor to help teach you to write you can have a really good book here. And so writing it took three months. Rewriting it took close to a year. And they didn't write a single word. And they told me right up front, we're not going to write a word for you. We're going to tell you chapter by chapter what you need to work on. And then you submit back to us what you think. And and that's how I learned to write. And so as you're reading it, like now I read it, I just picked it up the other day and started reading. I was like, oh, this is terrible. I need to redo this because <laughs> as you learn more and more, you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, okay. All right. But I'm very proud of it. And um, being lucky, my agent got a call from a gentleman who runs a gifting suite for the Oscars. And my agent was representing a, a chef who does these amazing cookies. Um, and- hold on. I'm going to interrupt you so i'm sure people listening are probably going what what's the name of the book oh i'm sorry what if yeah it's what if the name of the book is what if so now you guys know okay sorry to interrupt you yeah no i that's i'm a terrible marketer for myself (laughs) i uh anyway i i heard my wife in 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 my ear she would have been like what's the name of the book? And I would have kept you going and we would have been good. We would have never got there. Never gotten to the name of the book. All right, cool. So she gets this call and, and the guy says, well, is your chef available to come give away cookies at our gifting suite? You know, this is where actors or actresses, producers, just industry people come to pick up swag. And she said, uh, yeah, I think so. Let me check. How many spots do you have available? And he says, well, I've got three more. And she said, well, have you ever given away a book? And it's like, no, we've never done that. Why? So she told him, she says, I've got this author. He's a new author. He's a business guy, but he wrote this book and it's really good. And if you would allow it, we would like to have him come and give the book away. So they agreed. And I went out to the, the gifting suite. Um, wow. Creations did it. And they, they run a really good shop there and they, they've, they got it down pat. So uh, a couple of the sales ladies who worked with me came and, you know, we were just working hard, working the room, handing them out, handing them out. And I told them, I said, you know, we're going to give away 100, 150 books. We need to get 30 people interested in the concept. We need to get five or six that really like it. And then maybe something can happen. And we met some really neat people. And an actress, um, Christina DeRosa, came by and, and was such a lovely human being because most of the people come up and be nice and smile and shake hands, but they, they have things to do, right? Mm-hmm. 
she spent 10 minutes there talking to us. Just she didn't need to do that. And so I gave her the book and said, you know, here's my email address. I didn't want to bother them for their information because obviously they Hollywood right. people don't want to give that out. So I get an email from her a couple months later saying, I'd like to meet with you. I read your book. And I was doing a lot of business out in California at the time. So we set up a dinner and we sat down and she brought just all these notes. Well, why did you do this? And what about this? And I thought that was fascinating. And she said, well, my, my husband, who's a, a business manager um, in the industry, I'm sorry, he manages talent, mostly commercial actors and actresses. We would like to talk to you about doing a partnership to see if we can get your book turned into a movie or probably even better, a, a TV series. And I was like, sure. So we created Dig Entertainment. And that's just our last names. You know, I've been okay. asked a lot of times. I was hey, wondering Dig, what that yeah. Dig is cool. And I'm like, well, it's kind of my volleyball roots. I love it, right? But it's also DeRosa, Imes, and Grimaldi. So it's okay. pretty simple. <laughs> um, and so we formed that based on what if, but the goal was to get other projects going. And what if, uh, so far, we swung and missed. We, we got a writer who very well respected. It's got a lot of projects going and he got um, in front of all of the big guys, NBC and Fox and everybody. And the book itself, I don't want to give away too much, but it's got an artificial intelligence component that plays a huge role in the book. And the networks are like, we love this idea, but it, we already have an AI project and we don't want to you know, come in with too many AI projects. So it got passed on. Now he changed the, the story altogether. Um, he took the technology in the book and changed it to where it doesn't look backwards. It looks forwards, like what could happen, not what did it happen and, and how could that, you know, okay. so his concept was different than what we, what we thought, but it still was a, an amazing idea. And then we also talked to a gentleman to write a movie and he was very interested in it. He, uh, I don't have his permission, so I guess I better not say his name. He's an Oscar winner. Okay. Uh, he won an Oscar for uh, a big, big movie. And he's like, he had an idea for it. And he started asking all these questions and he was going to write it. And he got very sick and he's out of the hospital. Now he's recovering, whatever. So we're kind of waiting to see if he's still interested or maybe mm -hmm. he's decided writing isn't, you know, something he wants to do anymore. So what if it's not dead, we're going to kick that back off, but it's kind of sitting there. And in the meantime, Dig Entertainment picked up a couple of projects. One of them is a, a $20, 25000000 million animated, $25 million budget animated movie called Behold Gargantua. And it's a fantastic, fantastic project. So me being a business guy, that's kind of where I fit into the, the three people. I had never seen what a pitch deck looks like for a movie. Mm -hmm. And... I said, send me some that you like. And my partner, uh, Christina, sent me one for our horror movie called A Savannah Haunting. And I read the script. I, read, I looked through the pitch deck. It was amazing. I was like, this is fantastic. I don't remember this movie. What happened? Turns out their funding had fallen through. They never made the movie. So we arranged for funding for the movie. And it was shot during COVID, which was a nightmare. I bet. God bless those people. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the cast, the crew, everybody involved, they, they worked so hard and they were so diligent in making sure they were following all the rules. We didn't get anybody coming down with COVID. And this was before vaccines. Okay. So 
the movie took a long time and then it's out now, like I said, in the making the rounds of the, um, the film festivals. And it's won quite a large number of awards, everything from best picture for several of them to best director, best actor, best actress, supporting characters, you know, all the things. And I, I think it's over 30 awards. So we're now in the process of taking it out and trying to get a distributor and a buyer for it. Cause now we've got all of these uh, okay. credible awards that will help us find the right buyer. So, so that, that's what I was wondering. So after you go kind of on that circuit, well, let's back up. I mean, how hard was it to raise capital to get people to invest in producing or, or making a movie? It, it's hard, but in this case, I went to my partners after we had sold Advanet and I said, look, this is what we're doing horror movies are the best genre when it comes to getting a return on investment. Um, and then there's also some, some tax benefits to investing in movies. And it wasn't for the three of us together. Cause I, I put up money as well for the three of us together. It wasn't a huge investment individually. Um, and so we all were able to take that risk. And now, I mean, we haven't, we haven't sold it yet, so we don't know what's going to happen, okay. but I can tell you, we're really, really pleased with the outcome. And it, it does not, it doesn't, I don't even know how to say it. It looks so rich and so well done. You would think that it was a big studio that did this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a credit to the, the director, um, and the DP. Yeah. And you know, just, I, I was blown away when I saw the almost final cut of it. And so as investors, I know we're going to do fine. We're going to get our money back. We're going to make a profit. There's a lot of opportunity for other um projects in, in line with that. So that's how Dig Entertainment, it kind of helps me. And, and it does, it helps on the creative side because business, you can be creative in business and you need to be creative in business and you need to be a problem solver and you need to be all of those things. Uh-huh. But it's nice just to have unfettered imagination and being able to have an outlet for that. And that's what my books do. That's what the movie and helping work on the movie did. And so that's, I, I kind of, I just, in my mind, they're in very separate buckets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I watched the uh, the trailer for it. I, th- I thought it was amazing. Just oh, that three-minute trailer or yeah. four-minute trailer that was up there. Um, I thought it looked, and when you said it, how well done it was, just watching that, you could tell. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. Yeah. If you see a lot of movies on straight to streamer and whatever, you can tell they're, they're shoestring, right? Mm-hmm. And we weren't shoestring, so let me be clear about that. But it it really does look like a $10, $20, 30000000 million budget from the aesthetic mm-hmm. component of it. And, and again, that's all compliments to the team that put that together. They really yeah. did a fantastic job. Do you ever think that you'd be uh, as a producer on a movie? No, no. not a lot. <laughs> now, 10 years ago, you say, hey, Matt, this is going to happen. I'll be like, Pfft. yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I don't okay. think so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I mean, just so there again, you're just learning an entirely different trade, mm-hmm. you know, and pitch decks and different things like that. That you know, there are probably thousands of those out there yeah. of decks of people trying to sell their ideas and people that are going through that and trying to sell their ideas. You know, um, any advice for them? Uh, perseverance is, and, and, and most of those people will understand that, um, you know, the, the, the guy who wrote this book, this story, a Savannah haunting, um, it it's based on 
the hauntings that happened at his house. So it, the story is unique in that we actually filmed it in a haunted house, and they, they did a documentary that's attached to it because of the, the unique challenges the, that you had to go through, and there's, they have stories about crew experiences and things like that. But he tried for a long, long, long time to get this movie made. This is his baby because this is the house where his family was, you know, his dad passed away in the house and, and it meant so much to him. So I look at what he did and how many times he tried to get this made and how many people he talked to. And I would say, don't give up. If you've got that beautiful project, somebody somewhere will find it and will understand. I looked at it. I was like, this is amazing. He found the right guy. Mm -hmm. It just took that effort. And because he had that in the hands of Christina, Christina was able to give that to me. And that made the difference. So it may not even be somebody you talk to. It may be somebody that they're connected with. And so don't give up. Um, on the other hand, I would say don't tie everything to a single, single investment. It's kind of like if that was everything you did and it didn't work and you've been working on it for five or eight or 10 years, that's five or eight or 10 years that you could have been working on something else and doing things at the same time. Mm -hmm. and, and so divest yourself, find other things that you need to work on that you can find joy in that you can find that will bring you opportunity. And then things are going to fall in when they should. And one of the common questions when, when a screenwriter sits in front of a director is what else are you working on? What else do you have? Okay. And so we've got a, a second book that I've got that's coming out right now. It's, it's a novella, actually. It was designed to be a full novel, but a guy who wanted to write a screenplay on What If, and I, I put him off because we're hopeful this other director, I mean, this other writer will mm -hmm. do it. He said, what else do you have? I said, well, I'm halfway through the, this novel, and I like it. I, I really like it. Uh, he said, well, let me read it. So he read it, and he's like, oh, my God, man, this, I can do something with this. Can I pitch an idea to you? So he wrote up this whole proposal and it was a really neat idea that he came up with. So he ended up writing a script and he's done a lot of different movies. Um, he's talking directors and one of them asked him, what else are you working on? And that's, that's the kind of thing that you, you just have to get it out there and somebody somewhere along the line is going to find it. And okay. particularly if you have something else to back it up, they are going to give you more credibility and more opportunity because you're not a one trick pony. Okay. If you're out talking to somebody and this is all you've got, do they want to invest all that effort and resources and energy and talent and everything else that they're going to put into it and get one project out of it? No, they want to know that you've got two, three, four, five. And that was something my agent, my book agent told me. She's like, Matt, you've given me all these ideas for books that you have, and you've started writing a five book. And she goes, that helps me when I go talk to a publisher and they read what if, and I can tell them you've got four more in the pipe. Right. They're excited about that. So now that was, was what if, was that, um, did you publish that yourself? Was that I self did. Yeah. Okay. She, so what she told me was she could get it published, but it would take a year or two. And she's, Lisa's a smart lady. And she said, Matt, right now, artificial intelligence is really hot. And this was 2016, 2017. She said, you need to get this out there right now. And the easiest way to do it is self-publishing it so that it can be out there. You can put it on Amazon. You can put it in bookstores if you want. And that will give you credibility when, because we talked after the book was finished about really, this would make a fantastic TV show. Mm -hmm. And she said, the best way for you to do that is to have 
published intellectual property. So that's why I did that. And she was yeah. right, because then right after that, I got to the Oscars and you know, was able to hand that out. So she asked me about going to publishers. And it, it was an interesting discussion because she said, look, now you've got a book that's a good book. It's a really good book. You've got other books that you're working on. You now have this entertainment company. You're now a more compelling figure for a publisher. I can go, they'll pull it off the shelves, they'll pull it off, they'll, they'll rebrand it, they'll do some other things. And I told her, no, I, I said, I, I'm not trying to take money out of your pocket, Lisa, I'm not trying to do that. But at this point, I'm enjoying this process myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to do it myself. And if later on, I change my mind, that's fine. Then I'll just have more work out there for a, a potential publisher to look at. And she thinks I'm crazy, just so you know. <laughs> Um, but that's just like, you know, it's just me. Yeah. It gives me it's all right. Yeah. So what do you got? What do you got coming up? Anything, uh, that you want to do in the future, like five years from now, where do you kind of see yourself? My wife is very different from I am. She's, she's be, be the least intelligent one in the room, right? I'm the least intelligent one in my family. My son is, he just got his PSAT score back. And as an 11th grader, he scored higher than I did as a senior. He's 99th percentile. I mean, it's just, he's stupid smart. He's going to be an airline pilot. My oh, wife good. is a doctor. She's ridiculously smart. And here I am pulling up the rear, you know, chug, chug, <laughs> chug. Um, she, I, I told her my biggest fear in life as I'm, I'm 57, as I'm getting older is uh, I don't want to become irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And she's the opposite. She's like, I want to be totally irrelevant. Yeah. I don't want people calling me for medical advice. I don't want people, you know what I want? I want to have my friends. I want to have my family, but I don't want to be in that. And so I will never get out of the game. Okay. I just won't. I'll, I'll be, I'll continue writing. I'll continue producing. I will absolutely be consulting in, in the workers comp mm -hmm. world because I don't know anything else. And it makes me happy and I will do it. We're, we've talked well, I love the mountains. I love the mountains. So we've talked about buying a place, Idaho or Montana, Wyoming, mm -hmm. and then summering up there and wintering down here in Texas to be near her family. So I, I kind of see how five years be perfect timing for that. Yeah, no, that would be, uh, that'd be fantastic. Cause there's, there's only a couple types of people and one are like your, your wife and one are like you that one of those that want to be in the game and you know, going into consulting and things like that, you can do that anywhere. Right. And technology you know, is so good technology now. Technology is crazy. I mean, we don't, we don't even have an office. Literally, right. everybody is remote. Now, COVID helped that. But mm -hmm. the fact is, is offices just aren't all that anymore. No, you find out what you can really do remotely. And COVID kind of forced that. Mm -hmm. Um but it created fantastic technology and it gave people the opportunity to stay home and, and produce. That's yeah. the thing. You need to be able to produce when you're staying at home and, and working. And I think a lot of people were able to do that. It, I read uh, that the early returns are in and there is more productivity with people that stay at home than people that go to the office, which it seems counterintuitive. Mm-hmm but it makes perfect sense to me. Um, one of my clients, in fact, was telling me at a conference recently that they are remote. And she said that they had to put in a cutoff at 11 p.m. where they literally deactivate everybody's access <laughs> because people were logging in one in the morning and working. And it was, you know, when you manage your time, you know what, maybe I do go to the movie at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Great, because I know I'm going to be logged in at seven o'clock at night doing stuff. Right. And so they, she's like, look, I want, I want 
people to have a life. I don't want them to feel like, oh, so by taking away access, it's kind of forcing them. You cannot get on between 11 and six in the morning. Yeah. And, and I thought that was really smart. Uh, yeah. I, I will say, I do think that employees should be more like family than they should be servants. And for a long time, it's been the servant mentality. You should be honored to be working for Prodigy. No, I'm honored that you're working with me. And, and we had our, our Christmas get together and we've got, we just opened our doors in March. We've already got uh, 12 employees. And, and I, I teared up a little bit because I was saying, I, I, I am so honored that they would take this, this ride with us. Because mm-hmm. you know, they, they're basically what they're saying is to my partner, Dell, myself, the other executives, they're saying, we trust you with our families. And, and that's humbling. I mean, yeah. it really is. And so I, I, I hope that businesses over time get better about that and understand that employees are not commodities. They're not interchangeable. Um, they're human beings that, that are worthy of our respect and, and our attention. And I, I just, that would be one thing that I would hope would change over time. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect spot to leave this on. Because I, I hope that people hear that, that are in those levels, whether it be a C-suite level or even executive level or somebody that is building a business to have that compassion for the people that are working them or working for them mm-hmm. to create something and to build their dream. Yeah, um, we, we, Del and I, uh, Del Doherty, my partner is an amazing man. He's um immigrant from, from Sierra Leone. And he lived through the civil wars there and his life story is incredible. But he and I both feel like when the time comes to sell each employees, an owner of the company, they are going to get a piece of that sale. And that's another thing I I wish small and middle-sized companies would do. I understand why it's harder if you're an IBM, you know, or you're AT&T, but when you're a company like we are, where you're going to have 20, 25, 30 employees, you know what? They need to. They need to feel like they own that too, and yeah. so that's what we've done. And and I I I, I know that each of the, the team members that have come on are really really excited about what we're doing, and what they're doing to help that. And they're going to see the result of that. They're going to they're going to get some fruit at the end of that. Nice. Well, yeah. good. Well, Matt, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Me too. Thank you for this the time. was uh, this was really good. And his book is What If. What if? And check it out. I got it from Amazon, what if, and then the movie, A Savannah Haunting. Um, hopefully that'll be out and I'm hoping on the big screen yeah. one day. Yeah, but, hopefully. you know, if you're listening, go check out the trailer because I thought it was, I thought it was pretty awesome. So there you go. We'll leave it at that. Thanks, man. I appreciate I it. appreciate it, Robert. All right. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Beyond Grit with your host, me, Robert Young. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. Tell somebody about it. You can find this podcast on all major podcast platforms. And be sure to tune in every Wednesday for another exciting success story of somebody going beyond grit. Until then, take care.